0: This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meat and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds. And it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture.
1: We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way.
0: And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres.
2: Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground.
0: Tune in to Meetin 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. This week, Greg is in London to meet up with the world famous experimental psychologist Professor Charles Spence. He is the founder of the cross-modal research laboratory at the Department of Experimental Psychology at Oxford University. High level stuff. Professor Spence specializes in neuroscience-inspired in multi design, and has extensively researched how the background sounds and music that happens to be playing in bars, restaurants, and cafes, stuff we love, biases what customers choose to purchase, order, and or consume. Not to mention, what they think it tastes like, how much they would enjoy it, how much they'll be willing to pay for it, and the overall experience. We also pull from the archives and dip into the musical vault to listen to a 2011 in-studio performance from multi-talented LA-based electronic music producer Daedalus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
0: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
3: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, coming to you from Oxford University, or adjacent to Oxford University, and sitting across from Professor Charles Spence. Nice to meet you. Hi there. Thank you for having me over. A pleasure. Um, Your background, uh, growing up, your parents were showmen. For us Americans who don't know what that is, could you explain it?
2: Uh, So it is a section of the population who would uh, travel around the country. In my family's case, the north of England, uh, on the fairground, so um, with stalls and games and rides uh, in country towns. Um, I kind of travel around from town to town every week in a different city. Um, and, uh, yeah, they uh, would make candy floss, or cotton candy as you call it, over there. Um, coconut shies, toffee apples, and sort of huck a Huck. Huck.
3: Hawk-a-duck.
2: Oh, the game. <laughs> the game, yes. The game. <laughs> Things like that.
3: Um, and what was your parents' decision or your decision to not follow in the family and How did you get into science or to school or leave the showmanship uh, behind?
2: Uh, so I think that was my uh, parents uh, after they got married. Uh, so sort of realizing the uh, prejudice that there was in uh, British society against troubling folk. Uh, to try and have their offspring have uh, more opportunities than they themselves had, and so they decided to settle down become flatties as 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 they're called on the fairground I'm so sorry, definition, please flatties flatties <laughs> people who live in sort of flat houses and don't move oh. in contrast to the fairgrounders who are on the caravan and moving from town to town A kind of derogatory term, and hence many of their uh, former friends that would no longer speak to them after they'd kind of switched sides really like excommunicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but they, they settled down and uh I made sure that their children got a education in a way that they my parents never had because they were always moving. And um yeah, and given that they never went to school, they have always been a bit sort of skeptical of what um what is this thing, sort of you know, science that you do and, and teaching. And you know, how many lectures do you give in Oxford University a year? And maybe it's like thirty-six in a year. So they find it hard to think of that as a job. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, so you're not working every day and they're still giving you a paycheck. Of course we are, um, but in a way trying to sort of justify to them uh, sort of different, uh, different factors apply maybe that you um, just sort of academic knowledge for its own sake is of maybe little merit to those without education. Um, and so something that's more practical that you can use uh, does have uh, certain benefits. And maybe that's where a lot of my research has been around um, – trying to apply the science of the senses to everyday life in order to sort of develop interventions or or, uh, experiences that uh, touch people. It's like mom, dad, look, it's not
3: theory. It's it's actual everyday use. (laughs) Like I promise, like I get a paycheck for a reason. Um, Where did you study and when did you do undergrad and get your doctorate? Uh,
2: Undergrad here in Oxford in the 80s and early 90s and then uh, across the country to Cambridge for five years for – PhD and postdoc, and then back here again for the last twenty some years as uh, teaching uh, in Oxford. And at
3: twenty eight, you started your lab that you're most famous mm-hmm. for the, the cross modal lab. Uh, Maybe can you give an explanation of what it is and what the discipline is behind it?
2: So uh, the cross modal research laboratory uh, or lab for short is uh, based in the experimental psychology building uh, here in the university, um, and it's a lab that has been running for a little over twenty years now. Uh, the cross-modal, that's kind of a between the senses, so how what you see affects what you hear, what you hear affects what you touch, what you touch affects what you taste, that kind of cross-modality interactions, um, and we're interested in all the senses, and um, in the lab we have people somewhere at the, at the border of sort of basic research and the theoretical science and the applied science taking the insights and embodying them or, or using them to help design better warning signals for car drivers, plates that make food taste better. Or, or or sonic seasoning that uh, can enhance uh, the flavor of our food without the calories
3: and for those who are not as uh, well informed unimodal is just focusing on sight or taste and it, it separates them out and what really is interesting about your research is how all of them are pulled together and then giving one perspective but pulling from different senses. that's
2: right so um I guess the uh, the brain is a complicated thing. Our perception is a complicated thing. <laughs> and for, for an awfully long time, people have thought this is way too complicated to kind of study uh, in its entirety. Let's break down perception. Let's break down the pain. Let's break down humans into into each one sense at a time. Uh, so if one looks back in, I guess, probably in design, books in psychology and neuroscience, uh, in all kinds of uh, pursuits, one finds those who de- dedicated their life just to vision, trying to understand how we see others, who dedicate their life to hearing, uh, just how we hear and so on. Um, and when I arrived in Oxford, it was sort of funny to see that my lab was kind of next door to the hearing scientist and the vision scientist. And these two characters had not spoken to each other for uh, a decade or two. Uh, and he sort of felt that they didn't feel there was any loss, because if I want to understand vision, hearing is irrelevant. What's that got to do with anything? And what's changed over the last uh, quarter, quarter of a century or so is suddenly the realisation that our senses aren't separate, uh, convenient though it might be to think of them in that way, instead they're always communicating. And most of the brain, when you look carefully, uh, turns out to be multi-sensory. I mean, it takes inputs from from the eyes and from the ears and combines them in in interesting ways that we're starting to understand and starting to apply that understanding to to the real world.
3: Have you been able to become a neutral ground where you could get the hearing and the vision person in the same room and share their <laughs> research like a bit of an armistice? <laughs>
2: Um, so uh, what we see, I think, I see in a lot of the conferences. Uh, there is now an annual international multisensory research conference where all the people from around the world get together. Uh, if you look at the sort of the demographic, there tends to be a lot of younger scientists uh, rather than the old guard, um, and so it feels like it's sort of the new generation coming in and seeing the opportunity and almost the necessity to, under, to, to study perception in that multisensory uh, uh, way. Uh, but even some of the traditional hearing conferences, vision conferences, you do find that they have a session or two, or maybe more these days, where they do invite in those who study the other senses, and so probably they realize that uh, they can't really understand how we experience the world without on uh, on a sense by sense approach.
3: Where how I came across your research was your focus on on taste. Uh, you have stated that almost uh, almost up to fifty percent of what you taste is. Brought in by other senses—by sight, by sound, by smell. How do the other senses play into what you what you're tasting?
2: So for me, getting into taste, I uh, was kind of late in the day. I started off with hearing and vision, and then brought in touch. And as the years go by, you kind of bring in an extra sense. But I'd never get to uh, taste and smell if it hadn't been for kind of um, industrial funding that the lab got and a company uh, saying, "Well, can you come and help us? We've got some problems with our with our with our fruit teas and with our um, some of our other products." And not really being interested in taste at the time, uh, from a scientific perspective, I said, well, we'll do it. Any reason why you weren't interested in taste? Um, just because that's not something that scientists studied, or not psychological scientists didn't really study or neuroscientists. They they tended to study the higher uh, senses, you know, hearing, vision, the rational senses, rather than the, the base, emotional, low, chemical senses of, of smell and taste. Um, and because none of my colleagues or contemporaries had studied it. It's never occurred to me that you could really, Um, but was sort of dragged in and then realized that in fact taste uh, is perhaps one of the most multi-sensory things that we experience involving uh, definitely or taste on the tongue, but also smell and sight and sound and touch and pain. Um, All the senses come together. And the way that those other senses influence taste and tasting is often through setting expectations in that, uh, to sort of, I guess, to, to, to literally know the nutritional uh, quality of a food, we probably do have to put it in our mouths and taste it and figure out is it sweet or potentially poisonous and bitter or overripe and sour and so on. Um, but it's kind of a messy business to go around the world sticking everything in your mouth uh, to see w- whether it tastes good or not. So instead our brain infers uh, on the basis of correlated cues on the basis of colour maybe figuring out that riper fruits tend to be redder and sweeter, and hence when thinking about what food to put in our mouth we use colour cues, and hence bright red, pinkish red being a very effective cue to sweetness in food. Through sound, um, one might think of the sizzle of the uh, of the steak on the hot plate, the sound of the coffee machine grinding and spluttering, uh, all of these sounds too uh, play a role in setting our expectations. Um, And I think what what happens really is that um, taste which we experience in the mouth um which is by sort of scientific definition just a combination of taste from the taste buds on the tongue but also smell from the nose and maybe some trigeminal pungent chili kind of stuff going on there uh that 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 flavor sense um is always preceded by the expectation of flavor by the expectation of taste that comes from what we see that comes from the sound of food preparation that comes from the feel perhaps the the warmth of the plate or or the mug um, and it's those expectations then that anchor our experience of taste because they come first. And our brain says, okay, I think this is going to taste like strawberry, quite sweet and maybe um, quite fatty. Um, and then when we taste, our brains kind of sort of check reality against hmm. our expectation. And if what we experience is more or less what we expect it was going to be, then we kind of switch off and carry on with whatever we're doing, sending a, a, a message, watching the TV, and um, we so we live mostly in the world of our expectations of taste rather than in the world of the experience of taste, and that's where all the senses then kind of get brought together.
3: Have you found that people who are might be mute or blind have a different perception of taste, or is it just they have a different expectation and they generally find things taste the same as just the delay?
2: Um, so there is in fact surprisingly little work out there uh, on those with sensory deficits of any kind, be it uh. From the ten percent of males who are colorblind, how do they see food differently, and what different sort of flavor experiences do they have? Again, perhaps only a single study ever published on that. Bizarre. Uh, through those who are deaf or blind, say, um, and there, um, I guess one of the one of the popular formats for experiential restaurants over the last decade or two has been the, the Daniel Noir, dine in the dark, with the idea of uh, people sighted people. Uh, eating in complete darkness and perhaps served by uh, blind waiters to give the sighted the feeling of what food might be like to the blind. Uh, I think on the one hand it's a, it's a sort of nice idea, I mean I, in my own research I'm always fighting against the visual dominance that we always think with our eyes and, and and all the money goes to visual research and I want to say no all of the other senses are important and each sense will dominate for something, some aspect of our, our lives. Um, so in the case of food, surely wouldn't it be good then to be like a blind person and switch off vision? So allowing our other senses to kind of come to the fore for taste and smell. That's a nice idea. But in fact, I think given that we do always uh, make predictions, expectations about food in advance, mostly from what we see, when you take that away in a Dine in the Dark restaurant and you fail to give you use sort of a very ambiguous naming for dishes, then we often have no idea what we're eating. Uh, And you cannot find or we could not find anybody in print who had been to a Dine in the Dark restaurant and said the food tasted better. Mm. Uh, They were mostly uncertain what they were eating and and probably ate more uh, if they couldn't see it.
3: Your book, Gastrophysics and the Perfect Meal, Mm. deal with the science behind why things taste better or taste worse. Can you define what the study of gastrophysics is?
2: So it is a, a complex sounding word and a new word. Um, uh, and for us, uh, gastrophysics is a combination of gastronomy on the one hand, uh, referencing kind of nice food experiences rather than the kind of food science you see uh, going on in food company research labs, where people are brought in you know, every Monday morning to taste frozen chicken uh, breast in order to see how much fish meal they can feed the chicken before consumers can taste that fish on the chicken. Um, so that is food science too, but not kind of much fun. And there, and there are people who, who do that much better than us. So we're more interested in the high end, the nice, the memorable, the Instagrammable, uh, the great food experiences, the gastronomy. And the other part of gastrophysics is the physics from psychophysics, which is a branch of psychology. Um, mostly you done with hearing and vision, uh, where you sort of present people, observers, participants, rabbits, <laughs> uh, with a sort of carefully calibrated set of stimuli, of inputs, and then see how they respond into a sort of careful scientific sort of measurement of perception. Um, and we're trying to apply that approach. There are challenges, but we're trying to apply that approach to the world of food and drink to see what really determines what people think about what they eat, what they remember about what they eat, uh, why they enjoy certain foods more than others. Um, and then take those insights, which in a way you can think of sort of the science of the mind of the diner, which is the kind of the subtitle for the book. Um, which sort of builds, I think, in a way, from the three decades or so that we've had of molecular gastronomy, modernist cuisine, of sort of science being applied in the kitchen to the introduction of new ingredients and gelling agents and spumes and foams and gels and new technology in the kitchen of rotavaps and anti-griddles and sous-vide and the like. Uh, all that science has been there and being sort of having a, a dialogue with with chefs. Um, some love it, some hate it, but it's certainly... Uh, change some aspects of what goes on in kitchens and we're trying to say okay we've had 3 decades of science in the kitchen now it's time to think about the science of the mind of the person who's eating the food or drinking the drink because it's in their mind where flavors are constructed and hence if you don't know what your diners think if you're not setting the right expectations you can't hope to to deliver the food as you wish i can understand why chefs
3: might love it or hate it
2: because when i read
3: your books I definitely felt, oh, I can cheat here. Or it feels like cheating if I just serve it on a white plate and I have a certain type of music and it's a certain way to fork that, like, I can have the same food, but all of a sudden someone's enjoying it 12% or 20% better. But it's not really cheating. It's just having, it's not giving yourself uh, or taking away from an accidental Mm -hmm. misstep of (laughs) not enjoying the food as much.
2: That's right. So, so on the one hand, uh, working on, on flavor and food for 15, 20 years now. Uh, And not being a chef myself, um, nor a designer, nor a chemist, we sort of focus on the everything else, the the off-the-plate, if you will, the total experience uh, beyond the food or drink itself. What is it plated on? How does that food get to your mouth? Uh, What sort of cutlery, its weight, its material, its temperature, the lighting, the music, uh, the naming, all these things were more focused on. Um, And it can indeed seem to be sort of manipulation. What do you mean if you just change the name of the dish you call... uh, Patagonian toothfish, Chilean sea bass and suddenly everyone likes it. Um, that is certainly not what the chefs were taught in culinary school. They were, they were definitely those who I've spoken to sort of focused on the ingredients, the sourcing, the seasonality and so on. Um, and this new approach I think is important um, and for me when people start saying isn't this sort of manipulation or that's kind of a compliment at one level because for the first 10 years when we were talking to people and saying we think maybe the colour of the plate might change what people say about the taste. Well, you can't taste the plate, can you? That'd be ridiculous. Go away. Uh, you, uh, nonsense was kind of the response. And so after a number of years of sort of badgering away, trying to convince people by doing the experiments and demonstrating time and time again that all this other stuff does matter, then suddenly people are taking notice and saying, oh, it's scary. So you've won the first battle, that they think it's real and serious stuff now. Then the question is what to do with it. And I think um, uh, the answer is in part that uh, some chefs embrace these insights and the opportunities that they offer. Uh, some sort of think of it as oftentimes picking up on the intuitions that they had, but didn't really sort of trust themselves in um, and other times sort of hating it on occasion. But then you look at the chefs who, you know, say oh, my restaurant, it's not about trickery. It's only just about seasonal sourcing and, and beautiful cooking and, and, and presentation. Then you look at where the restaurants are. Uh, and I mentioned Sir Michael Keynes, a chef from the UK who was of that school and his restaurant happens to be in a wonderful country manor, you know, wood paneling, and you know without going there that um, he's not serving his food with plastic or wood cutlery. It's you know, heavy silver service. So some of the chefs intuitively take the stuff in. And ultimately, there is, I think, no neutral environment. Uh, you cannot just experience the food or the drink because it is always, always served off something, in something. Uh, and you're always in an environment with lights or music or temperature or smells and a certain atmosphere, ambience, and all these factors are always there in the background. Uh, and even those who try and take away the everything else, who try and, uh, as in the sort of 80s, you, know, you had the, kind of the the uh, white cube mentality in art, as in, in, in restaurants. This restaurant is just about the food there. There's white walls, white tablecloths, no paintings, no music, no nothing. It's just the food. Even that environment sets such expectations about what it is you're about to taste and so influences what people think about what they are given.
3: We're going to take a quick musical break. And then we'll be back here with Professor Spence on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
0: Cabot creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers tireless dedication to quality and freshness to healthy land and a sustainable future a century after they started this journey cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most family and community the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart that delicious products are the reward of a job well done that when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come.
3: For 10 years, Snacky Tunes has studied the similarities between food and music. Your book uh, and your research was one of the first time that I found the scientific connection between the two. From a larger kind of more uh, just empirical type of uh, setting, what if chefs begin to tell you about how music influences their cooking their dining rooms their setting etc because it it, relatively speaking it's new work and new papers where you start to really dive into the subject
2: Mm -hmm. so uh here in Oxford we've been looking at sound and taste for a decade now Um, it's kind of an odd combination of senses to get to because um, no one really thinks of what they hear when they think about what they taste I think about what's on my tongue, I think about smell, maybe I think about sight, but I don't think about sound. So sound is, in a way, the forgotten flavour sense. Um, And our work over the years has kind of gone from the sound of food itself, the crunch of the crisp, which won the Nobel Prize in 2008, to the sound of the packaging, the sound of preparation, and then um, over the last decade, moving into uh, sort of ambient sound or noise um, that is unrelated to the food itself or its preparation, but kind of happens at the same time, either as... uh, consumption or the tasting of something, or now starting to look at the effect of music or noise in the act of creation uh, of food and drink. And I think um, there's a growing body of evidence to show that even this kind of seemingly irrelevant background noise or music can have a dramatic effect on uh, the way we prepare foods, uh, and moreover on the way we perceive the foods that have been prepared. This can be everything from, in the bad case, noise, when uh, background noise, when music gets too loud, it becomes unpleasant, uh, and that suppresses our ability to taste. Uh, In the aeroplane case, say, uh, the 80 to 85 decibels of aeroplane noise, you're looking at a suppression of sweet perception, of salty perception, but at the same time, an enhancement of umami perception of its taste, thus explaining why tomato juice and Bloody Marys are so popular on aeroplanes because they are umami-rich, people are almost self-medicating uh, to pick a drink that stands up to the noise, to the sound of the environment, whether they realize it or um, not. Is
3: there a scientific understanding of why it suppresses those those flavors and raises umami?
2: Um, so there is evidence that uh, it does suppress those tastes, I'd call it rather than flavors of, of sweet and salty, by about uh, 20 to 30% uh, in some cases. Um But as to why, I mean, if it was that loud noise suppressed our ability to taste anything, then you might say, well, it's just masking. It's just interfering with our ability to perceive in the other senses. But that it is taste-specific makes the story a whole lot more mysterious and curious. um, And people sort of grasp for an answer in sort of evolutionary psychology that perhaps it's something about if you were uh, an animal being chased by a predator and it's being, rah, about to get you. Then at moments of stress and danger, you'd want some sort of energy-rich food to help you be know, able to fight off that danger. Uh, and that might explain why even rats uh, seem to have an increased preference for sweetness when there's loud noise in the background. Uh, but why, in, in the human case, sweetness is suppressed and umami is enhanced, I think no one has a good uh, answer to that yet. We just know it's true and uh, demonstrated in various labs. Uh, and we'll have to keep looking <laughs> for the underpinning uh, reason. Um but in the other case, uh, I think uh, the sounds, when they are not noise, when they're not unpleasantly loud, can enhance the tasting experience, and that's the, the, the area that we're more interested in, an area. It comes under the name of sort of sonic seasoning uh, for us, um, where you can use music or soundscapes, either off-the-shelf pieces that have been carefully picked or increasingly new compositions that have been specially uh, created to convey a certain taste, flavour, texture, mouthfeel, um, if, if those sounds are played while people taste something it can accentuate something in their tasting experience you can't get the right music and turn water into wine that's impossible but what you can do is take a complex tasting experience like a cup of quality coffee or or a glass of fine wine and then by playing uh, this or that kind of sound draw people's attention almost to something in their tasting experience that they might not otherwise have been be thinking about and by drawing their attention to it you can kind of boost it by five or ten percent to make it more acceptable what's
3: a good example of uh, a sound or a, a type of music that will enhance sweetness, sweetness. Uh, and an instrument that goes with it as well yeah
2: uh so you find tinkling high-pitched wind chimes are good um so you might feel think a bit of a my cold tubular bells has a couple of good sweet tracks uh, in there um piano seems to be sweeter than brassy instruments seem to be more bitter um and now uh not being a musician myself i sort of work with the musician's uh, but we find that, you know, sort of clarinet and flute will go better with sort of uh, music, will go better with white wines, whereas the heavy, uh, the more bass-rich uh, music will go better with red wines, say. We have sort of sour music, sweet, bitter. Uh, Salty is a bit hard to get. We've sort of got some things that get there but aren't perfect. Uh, and now we're kind of working on um, more exotic sounds of creaminess with a chocolatier in Belgium, Dominic Pasune, and we've got music that will bring out creaminess of his high-end Belgian delicious chocolates in his chocolate shop with his customers. And in Nashville, Tennessee, working with um, Steve Keller of IB Audio Branding, developed a spicy track, um, which was served together with a spicy mango salad in in a restaurant, Etch, um, with Chef Deb Paquet, uh, and did accentuate the spiciness of the dish. Um, Yeah, so I think that now we do have sort of these musical, almost menus, of if you're trying to accentuate this or that attribute, then these are the kinds of instruments, these are the sort of pitch range you might think about, this is the kind of tempo, the roughness, uh, the ambitus, and so on of the music, um, and then you can, okay, look, try and find music that has that sort of quality, or else compose something. Uh, and, and last year in the Science Museum in London, we were able to test thousands and thousands and thousands of people who came through the doors uh, to the Cravings exhibit, where we had about 30 of these specially created tasty tracks. And people will just listen to some number of those 30 and have to say what taste was a composer or the creator or the designer thinking of when they made that. And people are remarkably good. They're not perfect. There's no right answer after all, but there is a high degree of consensuality that in the best case is our sweetest track, which turned out to be the highest in pitch and t- most tinkly uh, was getting as about like 85 or 95, 90% of people say, yeah, that is sweet music. Did you find that um, that was across all cultures and backgrounds? um so that's a good question for the science museum data uh i don't think we broke it up we did break up some of our other experiments there by by cultural region but what we have done is um in work with sort of german sound designers they took the insights from the lab here in oxford about the uh, musical parameters for sweet bitter salty sour then made four versions of a musical track uh with slight variations um and we found that when those four tracks were presented to north American participants. They could decode the intention of the creator, the designer, 77% consistency and congruent with what the designer had intended the taste to be of that music. And then we took that music and presented it to a group of Indian participants with a very different musical repertoire and history and found that they are in about 72% agreement. Uh, so a slight change, but more or less similar. Um, obviously, there's a lot more work to be done, and sometimes we go to much more remote cultures. We've been to the Himba tribe in Cocoa and In uh, Namibia, they have no schooling, no written language, no supermarkets, to see whether they experience the same things as uh, more westernised or those who have access to the internet. And in some cases they do, in some cases they don't. Um, So I imagine ultimately what we'll find is there are some universals here, uh, perhaps some culture-specific stuff uh, in there. And the reason why I think there might be universals is I've got my just-so story about bitter and sweet and how those are two of the tastes that are easier to capture musically uh, comes from the observation that all newborns of humans, of chimps, of, of rats, cross-species, we all stick our tongues out and up when somebody gives us a sweet taste to ingest the calories and, and the goodness. Uh, newborns of all species uh, immediately stick their tongues out and down to to eject bitter things that might potentially be poisonous uh, and try to make a gurgling sound with your tongue out and down versus out and up. It's got a slightly different sonic property, and that's true. The world over across cultures uh, were born that way. And that's kind of a correlation between taste and sound that um, our brains probably just pick up on, like the ripe red fruits and sweet I mentioned earlier. Um, Some of these correlations that are out there in the world are useful to us, like sweet and red going together. Others like uh, higher pitch and sweetness aren't so useful, but our brains can't tell the difference. We just pick up on the correlations in the world. Some are useful, some are less so. And it's our research in the lab and online that helps to pick up some of these associations and then pass them to the designers and creatives to be played back to um, consumers in bars, in restaurants, or increasingly at home with sort of sensory apps where you you buy some product, uh, you scan the label, um, and then you get some musical content that can, uh, in real time, in your own home, hopefully change the tasting experience of some everyday product.
3: You mentioned earlier that chefs use music uh, to create, to inform what they're cooking. How have you seen that? Obviously, the dining room is pretty pretty interesting, but getting to there and what they're serving, how have you seen music
2: influence it? Yeah. So, um, most of our research has been on sort of uh, people's or diners or drinkers' perception of something created, uh, and it's only recently that we and others have started to think about what's going on uh, in the creative process itself. Um, and there, one sees uh, sort of an interesting dichotomy amongst chefs um, around some who say. Silence in my kitchens. There must be concentration, no music ever. It's, it's others who say, no, music is essential. We always have music playing. It's there to motivate, to keep people sort from of chopping, slicing, and dicing for hours on end. Um, and uh, yeah, so very different opinions about whether music's appropriate in the kitchen. And then I guess it was some of those New York chefs who were playing the loud, motivating music uh, in their uh, uh, kitchens who suddenly thought, well, maybe those who are eating our food might enjoy to listen to the same music that we were listening to when we created their food. And that kind of gets you to the overly loud restaurant interiors of 100 decibels that many New York eateries are, are, are currently uh, presenting their diners with. But um, beyond that, I, uh, research is now going on to, to, um, to look at, um, how do you put it? Uh, if you give people, say, some acidic and sweet fruit juices, ask them to make, say, a, a drink mixing the sweet and the sour, uh, then depending on the music you play in the background, if you play sweeter music, you get a different kind of drink composition than if you're playing so-called sour music in the background, suggesting there is some influence uh, there. And what I'm seeing now is, is, is um, some interesting work from Swedish and from uh, where was I? Uh, Italian uh, composers now working with chefs in the kitchen and kind of making compositions that are either where the instrument sounds are actually the sounds of slicing, chopping, and dicing, or some combination of real regular musical instruments plus kitchen sounds, in order to create new musical, tasty compositions that somehow connect diners who listen to these things with the action, the effort, what went into making them. That's kind of an interesting sort of a creative uh, uh, space there. Um, and I think we'll see more probably of, I forget his name now, the, uh, the Pit Q chef in the States. Uh, is it eating with, eating with Your Hands? Oh, was, uh, Zach Plotier. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you look at his book, it's great. Every recipe, uh, I guess for the home cook, uh, has a recipe on the other side. He says, I recommend when you're preparing this dish, you listen to this track or that track or the other. He kind of prefaces it by saying, you know, MOT scientists say it's true. Oh no, no, they didn't. I'm just making that up. <laughs> but still the idea that you might pair music with um ingredients or maybe perhaps the kind of actions that are required is it beating and smashing and grinding or just gentle sort of whisking i don't know um, and different music might match better different dishes or styles of preparation uh, and then may in fact change the way that those things are seasoned is
3: and you also mentioned that uh, background music can influence purchasing preferences taste consumer enjoyment how is it if you're in a shop or if you're in a Fast casual place that music can influence how people are consuming?
2: So, I think uh, uh, the background music can have a, a few different influences on our purchasing decisions, be it in uh, retail or in the restaurant sector, um, and on, on, on our sort of consumption behavior too. On the one hand, if we, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if we hear music that we associate with a particular region, you know, French accordion music or or German umpar beer keller music, then we'll end up being more likely, significantly more likely, much more likely, in fact, to buy French wine with the French music playing, German wine with the German music. Uh, in, in, in cafeterias, again, if you play Italian music, then people sort of pick the lasagna, not the paella, play some Spanish flamenco, and suddenly things reverse. Uh, people deny that they're being influenced in this way. What's really interesting about a lot of this research, uh, but the, set, the, the, the sales data tell a very different story. So. Music is influencing us, but not in a way that we kind of consciously realise. We all think, no, I always wanted to eat that today and to buy that wine. I was going, But in fact, we um, are being influenced more than we realise, both in the kind of things we choose. And then there's research suggesting from restaurants, cafeterias and wine stores, if you play classical music rather than top 40 tracks, that seems to prime notions of, of quality and class, and you spend a little more in all those venues with classical music rather than other types of music there. Uh, through to when you're actually decided and ordered and, and have delivered to your table your food or drink, then uh, the beats per minute of the music, as that increases, the rate at which you bring your fork to mouth or glass to lips increases kind of entrainment to the musical beat. Uh, and that as the volume of the music goes up, it seems to be the case that we sort of drink uh, more too. Hence, maybe why you have so many bars with such loud music, uh, because uh, intuitively or otherwise, kind of managers have figured out that loud, fast music uh, leads to increased till receipts. Uh,
3: Finally, you you also focus on technology and how it plays into consumer experience. You've made a pair of spoons uh, in the past. Uh, what are some of the very futuristic, we won't see for many, many years that you're excited about uh, and technology advancements that you think will eventually creep into consumer mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. and
2: habits? I have to say, most of the things that others are excited about, I am not excited <laughs> about. Things like 3D food printing, I kind of think of it as, a, as a waste of time. And I'm more interested in, in the um, uh, kind of the ubiquitous technology of everyday life uh, and repositioning that, the smartphones and mobile phones, the tablet computers, uh, the kind of the cinema home cinema watching headsets um, uh, Google Glass for example thinking about that and how that can be repositioned to augment and enhance the food experience because that's brilliant technology in many cases uh, not really connected to food as yet you know it's like don't eat when you're at your computer in case you spill your drink over your keyboard or something so the technology is kept separate from food but if we have that technology and it is there at the table currently distracting us very often from what we're eating uh, how can we reposition it so for example that's where some of our sort of work on um sensory app somewhere in a restaurant in London. We had, you know, take out your mobile device, dial this telephone number to bring out the sweetness in your dessert. So it's your technology in your pocket being used to augment the flavor uh, or the taste um, through uh, what could we do if we dine off tablets some tablet computer screens, computers are now waterproof. You stick them in the dishwasher, I suppose. Uh, what would that enable you to do? I see some high-end chefs already playing with serving the odd dish in their fancy sample a greener-listed or Michelin-starred uh, restaurants off a tablet rather than a regular plate. And so far, they're kind of playing a bit ironic. They might show a picture of a white plate on their tablet screen and then plate the tablet. In fact, what's the point of that? Why not use a white plate? But still, they're exploring the space, I think, and something in there will stick. In our hands, we think maybe that uh, we know that the colour of the plate matters, but that there isn't a perfect plate colour. It often depends on the contrast between the colour of the food you're eating and the plateware. And so practically, no one's going to buy a rainbow assortment of cutlery for their own home. But if I could optimize the color of the tablet screen for mm-hmm. each and every food I eat, that has got a functional benefit of technology. Uh, that technology is already there uh, through sort of augmented reality uh, headsets. Were. So far with our uh, colleagues in Japan, Katsuo Okajimo got this sort of uh, the cinema headsets You watch by for about $1,000 online. Uh, where you can augment the sushi that you're eating or the food you're eating and change the fish just like that. So it looks like tuna one minute, it looks like salmon the next, and get the veining and the sheen of this fish, very complex visual science. So far done just for fun, but one can imagine a future when we run out of some of our favourite ingredients or or fish, uh, and we may have the augmented virtual version uh, mediated by technology. I think the headset is probably not the way to go, but we're currently, and I think my colleague's going to bring over in two weeks, which I'm very excited about, kind of a mobile, um, sort of a smartphone uh, version uh, of this technology that would allow all of us to sort of play at the table. Um, uh, and that's where I think uh, exciting future things will come. And, and where we see a sort of shift from food as nutrition and as sustenance, which it really is, in fact, towards uh, a notion of, sort of food and play and food and theatre and food and entertainment uh, and combining, in fact, different sources of entertainment why not why have you know the pre-theater dinner why not have my dinner while i'm at the theater and if i'm doing that how can those things build off each other and synergize rather than distract one from the other
3: professor spence thank you for making time for us today where can people find your books uh follow your research read your white papers
2: um i guess just search online i think Astrophysics and the perfect meal are both available uh on all good online booksellers um and uh, in bookshops Uh, And the research papers are often open access, but uh, probably available somewhere on the internet.
3: We're going to take another quick musical break, and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast heritage radio has plenty more hi i'm harry Rosenbloom, and i'm the host of feast your ears here on hrn my show explores the world of food through storytelling every week i talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook you can find feast your ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on org. all, all right.
3: right welcome back to snacky tunes uh that was great. That was that was really good, but as you know, we always have a musical guest as well, and today... So then the show's over. Yeah,
1: the show's over. Sorry, thank you all for being
3: here. <laughs> hey, thanks. You've been great. Hey, uh, hey, so
1: well. on today's episode, we have Daedalus. Yes. Thank you so much for having me out. And that um, was really fantastic. Yeah, it's such a double threat kind of idea, such a fantastic mix i not I, get,
3: I guess once you're good at things with your hands you're just good at things with your hands and, and precision
1: I, I wish it was that way you know, i think the world would be so much a better place if somebody was good at one thing and that would automatically make them good at something are you else. not
3: good in the kitchen i'm not gonna say anything oh, okay is, is that okay. no
1: no 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 not, not terribly i mean i love tasting and uh, i'm living in los angeles that's where i'm coming from all the way out here in nyc and um and there is so much good food that I think I'm just tempted to never be in my kitchen. To be honest, that's fair. That's fair. By the way, I gotta say shout out to Lior for putting us together. Who's Who's yes. great? Can
3: I say something? Lior is when awesome. I was in Austin, I didn't cook once. There was just too much good food and it's so so cheap, like taco meals. Come on, don't give me that look. Talk
1: about talk about truck culture though. I mean, like L. A. has yeah. a wonderful thing, and it's I mean they sort of kicked happen. off the whole truck culture in America, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you... I mean, you know, it's like it it has its it wasn't necessarily refined when it first came out. I mean, you had your true taco trucks. Mm-hmm. And then now you're seeing reflection and then they're all individually. Like Austin is really a different idea of, of that truck culture. But
3: Yeah, truck culture in Austin is is actually more just like trailer park. Yeah. They don't really have tr- – I mean, they have a few trucks, but they're more
1: – I've had some pecan pilots, like some tiny pecan pies there. And then I think I died. I think I went to some small heaven. Uh, it's amazing. Um, for the handful of listeners that don't know who you are, Why don't you just give them a little bit of background? Sure. I'm an electronic musician generally, Um, coming from a pretty diverse background in in jazz and classical music, but uh, found my way to electronics being a lot of freedom there. And I am based out of Los Angeles, but um, I'm I'm happy to say that I I get a chance to tour a little bit. I just was here this weekend playing at uh, Brooklyn Electronic Music Festival and the In N Out Festival, and uh, just had a grand time. New York's such a fun town. Kids just kind of go What's weird. the uh, In-N-Out Festival? In-N-Out Festival was kind of dealing with experimental interfaces. I'm using a machine called a monome, which is experimental enough, but, you know, really a lot of electronic music that you see is all based and bound around laptops and stuff, and, that's kind of a boring place, so um, I'm kind of happy that I'm using machinery that helps me break away from that. Not that your listeners can see any of it. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> no, but, but it's, it's a pretty. You, you can get a verified, okay.
3: but we're verified by the two of us, Thank like no, we're like musical notaries on this show. Perfect. We swear
1: it's not just like a. No, it's it's. Do you want to describe what it looks like? Sure. It's it's a grid of 256 buttons on the larger one and 64 on the smaller. They light up, and it allows me to manipulate samples and melodic information at my whim. But that's at its best, so that you have worst, like, I'm just like... Mm. 250
3: samples on there? No,
1: it's like each line is a sample, and as you press any point in that line, it'll be that point in the sample. So you can really make new melodies, uh, new rhythms. My brain so. just got... It's like... But it's I like, understand. Hey, I mean, you guys are talking about food, and I bet you it makes your listeners extremely agitated at times to hear all the good things and not be able to taste it directly. True. Well, most of the time we just talk about pizza. And I swear, <laughs> if you've been listening to us... And you live in the New York area and you haven't
3: made it to Roberta's by now, mm. shame on you. Yeah, Can was, we say shame? But so what was the analogy you're making
1: to your samples? Just saying that basically it's, uh, it's an experience that you can hopefully taste a little bit in your ears as long as it's on the radio. But in terms of this being at a performance, it, it is a wholly different thing. And so, you know, hopefully people take the time to go and witness some live music and kind of get that thing going, just like they're going out to restaurants, I'm sure.
3: That's. I mean, that's awesome. I, you know, what I was excited about this uh, interview is before, because when you and I were talking before about different things... You have a wide number of opinions, especially uh, on food which is which is perfect, and more importantly, one of my favorite things coffee okay fantastic uh, so I mean we, I mean we have coffee here, we have our favorite place, Blue bottle, but you've obviously toured the world and had tons of different coffee. Where is your favorite coffee from to start
1: well i mean i, I am I'm fully bound and tied to my Los Angeles local, which is at intelligentsia um, love it yeah, I mean they really do it love right. It. They have a nice diversity of single origin. And, and their um, their sugar glider, their new offering in terms of their blends, is just beautiful. And basically, those of you who aren't familiar necessarily with coffee culture, it, it can be a bit of an intimidating place because you have people talking about, you know, the bitters and the fronts and the backs of things. And, you know, it's just like, it's like wine, wine culture. Yeah. Exactly. And you're, you're talking about varietals that have been going on for sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of years. And basically, it's all just about a wonderful taste and a great pool and in that way, I, what can't, you?
3: I can't remember, was it this article that came out about Danish light, ro- light roasted coffee. It's like super light roasted, like mm-hmm. super like, and they say that you can over roast bad beans, sort of massive flavor, but with well, that's light what, roasting.
1: That's what Starbucks does. They, they just hit their, they whack their beans with so much, so much heat that basically you can't really go wrong, but you can't taste good. You it, it, it tastes you, burnt. It, it really is coffee that's been that attained, a burned so that it can take milk and sugar really well. So basically, you can add as much milk and sugar, and it still tastes like some sort it of. It tastes thing. like
3: the idea of coffee.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, right you have you have in your mind you have this idea. It's a good name for uh, for a blog.
3: <laughs> the idea of coffee. Yeah, that's that's free. No, oh, okay. So okay. Free. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> I have so,
1: thought about trying to detail some of these. I have done some coffee tourism, going to places like Vietnam, having civet cat coffee. I do not recommend civet cat coffee. Are you guys familiar? What is that? Oh, is that
3: the poop coffee? That is the poop coffee. I, ha- I actually mm. have a bag of it under my bed, and mm. like the little brewer thing oh, okay. that a friend gave to me, and it's still
1: like I just never. I'm sure it's fine. Because we've had argan oil, which is poop oil. It's the yeah. same thing. You know, it's 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 a novel concept. And sure, probably at one point, it was something that really happened in the world. But I think nowadays, it's probably... Forced. Forced, yeah. But, you know, people still eat pate. I you, mean, don't, uh, you don't want to force poop. Because that just hmm. causes all types of problems. It's <laughs> a whole
3: a whole factory of, of monkeys eating beans. Anyway, uh, let's hear some music. Yeah, okay. so, so we're going to do today a little bit differently. We're going to give um, Daedalus about a 10-12 minute window just to... Let let it fly. Let, let it happen, and then we're gonna do a more concising uh, towards the end. But concising, we, concising, concise thing. Okay, thing. One, uh, it's even more concise. Yeah, it's even yeah concise uh, thing. So let's um, say so, dayless live on Snacky Tunes Radio. Awesome, that's uh, that's really wild. Oh, fantastic! That's yeah, that's <laughs> I, I. This is like there's a handful of times where you wish that there was like a camera in here so <laughs> you could see that, but um, that was really that was really amazing. Thanks. Uh,
1: so, you, so you program each line? It's a little different. It's like each each uh, sample is just kind of little snippets that I've taken, mm-hmm. and then on the fly, I'm just kind of removing and and changing things. Kind of today, I have to admit, like middle of the afternoon on Monday, it's kind of hard to necessarily get like. A specific vibe but the food in here is very evocative uh, i mean that often is the case like I'm, I'm only in places for very short periods of time you know i'm in, maybe in a country for like five hours or something unfortunately right. like i mean it's beautiful to tour but a painful experience when you're in some storied land and you're basically you know you're gonna be there seeing the inside of a club inside of a hotel a car you know in some yeah exactly in some in some order you're just doing these same three or four things um yeah, it's And like, so oftentimes you know. it's the meal you have that that informs what you do you know, as much uh, as an audience. You know, we had talked about before where you get these machines
3: made, it's mm-hmm. a, a sustainable farm. How do you feel that factors into like modern touring? Like how as mm-hmm. like a single artist that you can be practice sustainability when it is like, you know, your carbon footprint
1: is huge. It's tough, yeah. I mean, you're talking about flights and, and tour buses. Mm-hmm. Those are not so kind. And also just at almost every venue, you know, your rider, your 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 hospitality rider what they call it, you know, it'll be like twenty four plastic bottles. Yeah. This like giant thing of chips and hummus and all this stuff, and you're likely to take a bite of each. Most right. musicians I know, they take like a single slice and then everything's going to be trash. Right. right. I mean, that in itself isn't the best situation. I mean, obviously musicians need their comfort zones or whatever that might be. I, I try to fight that generally just by having as minimal needs as possible. And and then hopefully, you know, when it's possible to put something like a local prepared meal, be it something made at the venue or made by the promoter or, or when, it's, when it's right, you can go out to an actual restaurant and, and yeah. do it. You know, there's a lot of cities that are turned on now to sustainability and a lot of restaurants that are, are playing that into into it. So if you just have a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of interneting, you can probably find a place even if it is like 30 minutes from the venue or whatever. And, and yeah, you But you there. usually have 30 minutes. Exactly. You know, usually the sound check goes on for, you know, you take a few minutes, you make sure the sound's right and then you can break out and like try to co-wow. do something. <laughs>
3: do you feel like the promoters are more agreeable to that now? Like they're moving towards that and they understand it's like a part of the comfort and setting the stage for a good performance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you find more and more often that the actual venues are, are tuned into it as well. I mean, you're talking about venues are most of the time a very localized event, you know, between the promotion and the actual act of going to a venue. It's like a very, I mean, so you don't always see local food, but you always see like microbreweries and, and, and kind of that. The tip of the knot, I mean, alcohol goes very well with venues, and that's how a lot of venues make their money anyway, so right. you're seeing moments like that.
3: You get a home cooked meal in Europe, uh, venues.
1: I, almost every show you play in Europe, there's going to be somebody <coughs> who's actually like, looking out to make sure you're, you're living, your lifestyle is good. America's very behind the times on that. There's a few venues, a few promoters who really go out of their way to make you sure you're having a special time, but I mean, I played a show in Vienna a little while back, and the guy, you know, his whole mission is to make sure you go to the best restaurant in Vienna you can. That's amazing. And I mean that's I what mean, a the show is almost afterthought. Like he's like, right. Oh that's right, you gotta apply now. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry go. sorry we applied you with wine and it's not and, bad, dude. It's it's not 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 bad. <laughs> um
3: before before we hear one more mm-hmm. um epic from you, <laughs> uh I want to talk about the Archimedes. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and well actually that's all I can really say because <laughs> it's so brand new that you're gonna have to explain it to uh
1: Absolutely. I mean i so here I am making this kind of music, and it's at my fingertips, but there is another element of a live performance that that's going on right now. There's a lot of arguing in the, especially the electronic community, but also just overall music experience is is a big thing. And the way it visually presents itself is, is tough in electronic music. You generally have one performer or just two people up on stage, and they're pumping their fists, and you don't really see very much else. So you see a lot of people doing laser shows and video mapping. It's It's beautiful, but it's almost like the performer doesn't need to be there, so... So thinking about that, um, myself and these these two gentlemen in the UK came up with a, a visual concept that is a wall of moving mirrors, and we're calling that Archimedes. We we toured through Brooklyn um, at the Williamsburg Music Hall a few months back. So it was super fun, but but basically, yeah, this wall of moving mirrors, and you're using video as as a source of light as well as content, and because it's mirrors, it happens to throw it back into the room, and so the performer is. In, in the best situation, it's amplified, and it's also a human um, operator on the on the wall of mirrors. So it is into some pre-programmed movements. It's like somebody actually um, telling the servo motors to, where to go.
3: Uh, oh, the, I, a, I'm the, pulling <laughs> it up because I don't. My brain. Oh man! Uh, and the the video
1: is that um, pre-programmed video, or is it capturing the crowd and putting it? It's it's pre-programmed just in the sense, but it's using it more like light sources. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what's po- po- possible with all these new projectors nowadays with these like really powerful lumen projectors. You can make a real experience and it can it can have all the variation of like a light source or LED light. But then, you know, it's one of those things too. It's like, I really, really would encourage people just go out and experience music. I mean, I know we all have our headphones, we all have our iPods and it's just, it's really beamed right away into our ear space. But being in a communal situation and experiencing live music is, is really, really what it's about. I mean, that's how at least I was flipped on to really wanting to become Same. musicians because I saw shows that were, you know, people giving their all on stage and that, that was all you could ask for and, and the music.
3: affecting the crowd and people in a conversation losing their mind exactly. and
1: that's the thing a conversation like the you know the audience is as much to do with it as the performer does
3: I agree that's I th- amazing I, I think uh, that's a good place to, okay. to well hold on a second we need nuts and bolts or Lior <laughs> oh, yeah. would, uh, would slap <laughs> me around MySpace Twitter Facebook I'm Friendster. S- yeah, no professor. more. Yeah, exactly. MySpace and A
1: little less, a little less. Uh, I would say if you want to hear my sound directly, SoundCloud is a great source. So Loves, SoundCloud, cannot, it's it's easily, I actually just uh, ran into Anthony from Pipe Machine,
3: and we <laughs> sung the praises of SoundCloud. It's
1: it's great musical discovery right now. It's you know it, it'll flip around. It might change again, but SoundCloud for now is a fantastic por- portal of music discovery. And my SoundCloud has just happened to be under the name Dataless. Just in case uh, if people don't see it on the website, yeah, it's D A E D E L U S. But um,
3: the one thing I would love about SoundCloud mm-hmm. and I think it would make it cement its place in
1: history if it had tour dates on it. You know what? It, it, they're uh, they're so specific in their mission, the, the commenting through. It doesn't have that yet, but you can go to Songkick. That's a very good website that actually I think was partially based here in New York. But Songkick or, you know, of course, Facebook. My Facebook uh, is being under Daedalus as well. and yeah. Daedalus Music actually on Facebook. So. I
3: think once you start doing like tour dates, it's like, well, then why don't we have photos? And like, it's just like, it's just like, you're here for the music.
1: The core mission. It's always hard to diverge from the core mission, or else you end right. up with Facebook and how messy that is. Yeah, because that's okay. like.
3: I. It's just like once you start adding one thing, yeah. it's like, well, why don't we add? Well, we added that, so yeah. go there for the music.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's why I only use Bing. No, <laughs>
3: um, all right, so we're gonna get um, a more concise.
1: Yeah, I'm just going do...
3: Sonic uh, Sound Journey.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna actually start with a song called "L.A. Nocturne," which originally appeared on Lior's "Friends of Friends" Volume One compilation, and then we're gonna. More from there, but just before, just in case this is the last bit, thank you guys so much for having me on. Thank oh, you guys so much yeah. for doing this because it this is something that I feel like needs to be talked about, swirled around, uh, touched and tasted you. more. Uh,
3: thanks, so. and that, that is actually it. We, we're gonna take it out on the music. Um, thanks to Mark, thanks to Phil, thanks to both Roggenbaum, as always. Yeah, and we're, be- we're, we're out. We're oh, and uh, no, we're here next week before we go to Thanksgiving Spectacular. Yeah, it's Liam Finn is uh playing live. Oh, awesome, and let's not forget uh, this Thursday, Death & Co. at Santos. Death and Taxes. taxes, Sorry. Death and Taxes release party? Yes. We're DJing. Okay. See
0: ya.
4: Goodbye. You ever want a penny that cries? You can throw all my tranquil pills away. Let my blood pressure go on its way. Cause kiss all pretty ones. Goodbye. You ever want a penny? that cry you can throw all my tranquil pills away let my blood pressure go on its way cause my autumn is done coming my autumn
0: about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
3: This program is powered by Simplecast.
0: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.